Welcome to Episode 1 of The Power Podcast, presented by Power Magazine and PowerMag.com. The Power Podcast is the latest offering from the longest-running power industry publication in the world. Established in 1882, the Power brand is dedicated to providing its global audience with news and information important to the power generation industry. Now here's the host of The Power Podcast, Executive Editor Aaron Larson. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is the first in what I expect to be a regular power brand offering. In this episode, I am joined by Rebecca Williams, who is a partner in the Watson, Farley, and Williams Law Firm. Rebecca is based in London. I expect our conversation to revolve around a recent UK Supreme Court decision concerning a wind farm dispute, but the implications of the case extend practically to all power projects because contract language and interpretation was a major part of the ruling. Rebecca, thanks for being here. To get things started, please tell listeners a little bit about your background and how you arrived at Watson, Farley, and Williams. Thank you very much, Aaron, for having me. Um, as Aaron said, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm a partner within the dispute part- department in the London office of Watson, Farley, and Williams. And I specialize in providing dispute avoidance and resolution advice to clients in the construction and energy sectors, um, but increasingly with an emphasis on the renewable energy sector. And I think most pertinently, pertinently to today's discussion, I acted for the successful party in an arbitration involving an offshore wind farm, which involved almost identical issues to those that were decided in the Robin Reed case, which we're discussing today. And that's, um, that's where I wanted to take this, was uh, to the UK Supreme Court's decision uh, in the MT Hogard, AS versus Eon Climate and Renewables UK Robin Rig East Limited, frequently called the Robin Rig case. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how uh, the Supreme Court got involved and in, in what the decision was and, and some of the background on that case? I certainly can. Um, this is a long-standing dispute, and it's, uh, I, it would be fair to say that the industry has been awaiting this decision for some time and with interest. Um, the story really begins in 2006, when MTH Hogard contracted with E.ON to design, construct, and install the foundations for the Robin Rig offshore wind farm. Um, I should perhaps also explain that MTH Hogard is a leading construction contractor from Denmark that was very, very active in um, the offshore wind industry and has designed and constructed offshore wind farms in the UK, Denmark, and globally. And E.ON, for those who are perhaps not aware, is um, a major German utility, and it's actually one of the top six UK utilities. And they own and operate four offshore wind farms in the UK and elsewhere in the world. So MTH Hogard agreed to design and install a monopile foundation, and this essentially involves, uh, in, these are installed by driving the steel monopile into the seafloor and then fitting a transition piece over the top of the monopile, which supports the turbine and generation unit above. The connection between the monopile and the transition piece 
is secured using a concrete-like grout. And MTH importantly agreed to design the foundations in accordance with an international standard for the design of these types of foundations, which is DNB standard J101. And J101 was the preeminent standard for the design of monopile foundations at the time. But unfortunately, the standard actually contained a very serious error which overestimated the axial load capacity for the grouted connection by about a factor of 10. Mm. The result was that wind farms across the North Sea started failing and this error came to light because of you know, the physical manifestation of this error, which was transition pieces starting to slip down monopiles and there were failures of offshore wind farms in the Netherlands, in the UK, and it was a widespread industry problem. I'm not sure, Aaron, if if you're yeah, aware of it, but it had... I was going to say, you know, I haven't heard a lot about it. Do the, do the turbines and, and, you know, wind... Uh turbines just fall over? Is that what happens in out in the sea? Well, that was that was a very grave concern um, because obviously you had the transi- transition pieces and the weight of the transition piece in the turbine actually now resting on the monopile foundation um, and held in place actually just by these things called stopper plates, which were actually used to, to position the transition piece on the monopile to achieve verticality, but what they were most certainly never intended to do was mm. to house the the weight, you know, to rest upon the monopile. So the very real concern was that this was going to be a massive safety issue um, and that, yes, it was a very real possibility that these turbines, the towers, would actually collapse. I mean, in the event remedial solutions were devised, um, but that, that was certainly the immediate concern. So um, the installation of the foundations in this particular case commenced in 2007, and then very shortly after construction was completed in 2009, the foundations on Robin Rig began to fail. And initially, E.ON and MTH quite sensibly decided to park the issue of liability in order to focus on developing a remedial scheme to stop, you know, the deterioration of these. Yeah. And so they came up with a method to reinforce the uh, connection and and hopefully prevent further deterioration down the road. Is that the idea? Exactly. And they had to, that was quite pioneering in and of itself because they'd never been faced with an issue like this. And they used various, um, Various wind farms have used various schemes, but one of them is elastomeric bearings. Um, so the remedial works commenced in 2014, and the the cost of those ultimately was 26 million euros. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, because of the quantum of the claim and the fact that the genesis of the problem was actually an error in an internationally recognised standard and due to no fault of the parties, they were unable to reach an agreement on who should bear the cost of the remedial scheme. And that's how that's how the dispute first ended up before the courts. And the 
case was first heard before the Technology and Construction Court here, which is a branch of the High Court, which specialises in, as the name suggests, construction and engineering disputes, but also IT disputes. Um, and I think I need to explain, Aaron, the contract itself, because this is really at the heart of the dispute, as it often is. But under the contract, MTH had agreed, as I said before, to design the foundations in accordance with J101, which was the DNV standard and the go-to standard at the time. And DNV was also required to certify the design. But at the same time, the contract conditions also included a fitness for purpose obligation. And I'm assuming you have something similar in the States. Is it is it called fitness for purpose in the States? To be honest, I don't know the, the legal terms when it comes to the contracts and things, but um, I assume there would be something similar to that, yes. Yeah, so by way of explanation, a fitness for purpose obligation means that you are warranting an end result. You're guaranteeing that something will be fit for the purpose um, and the purpose is usually defined in in the contract conditions, actually, in the contract itself. Um, and so it's an basically, not only were they supposed to build the uh, or construct the foundations in accordance with the standard, but also to basically certify that that standard is uh, acceptable and would meet the purpose of a 20-year life, lifetime. Yeah, the, the design and installation was going to last 20 years. That's essentially, that, that's what they signed up to. And now, the way in which they signed up to that, they may not have realized, certainly the engineers and those dealing with the technical requirements may not have realized that that's actually the bargain that they had in fact struck because the conditions of the contract contained the fitness for purpose obligation, which was, which cross-referred to the technical requirements, which is the technical specification. And it was in the technical requirements that it said that MTH would produce a design and an installation um, that either had a design life of 20 years or a service life of 10, 20 years, that they would ensure a service life. Now, there is a distinction between those two terms. And Certainly, an, an engineer would understand those things to mean different things. So, um, a design life is a requirement to, in, sorry, and a requirement to ensure a 20-year service life means or amounts to a warranty on the part of the contractor, in this case, MTH, that the foundations will last for 20 years, whereas if a structure has a design life of 20 years, that doesn't mean that you're guaranteeing that it will inevitably function for 20 years, although it probably will. It's a matter of probability based on using certain design parameters, if that makes sense. So you're not guaranteeing an absolute result. You are using design parameters and a standard which should yield a 20-year life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make it's sense. It's a bit of a nuanced, yeah, it's a bit of a nuanced distinction. Um, and so I so, think that the contract that they signed was effectively guaranteeing that they would last 20 years rather than just that it was designed to last 20 years. Exactly. 
And MTH's arguments before the Technology and Construction Court were that, first of all, because of the error in the DNB standard, there is a there is a an incompatibility between the obligation on the one hand to comply with the DNB standard and the obligation to warranting sorry the the warranting of a certain result which actually cannot be achieved because of the defect in the design. The defect in the design means that you if you comply with it, as you're contractually obliged to, you can't deliver mm. um, a wind farm with a 20-year lifetime. So that that was one of the arguments. The other argument that they ran was that you had these internal cons- inconsistencies where, on the one hand, the conditions and the technical requirements overwhelmingly spoke of providing a design life of 20 years, but you had a a number, in fact, I think it was one paragraph reference to ensuring a lifetime or a service life of 20 years. Um, unfortunately for MTH, their, arg- their arguments were unsuccessful and they lost in the Technology and Construction Court. And this is what the judge had to say. He said that the contractor had essentially taken on the risk of the J101 design standard being faulty, it was obligated to achieve a specific outcome, had failed to do so, and would have failed to do so even if it had complied fully with the agreed design standard. So it's quite a harsh outcome, I would say, for MTH, and unsurprisingly, they appealed. So the case was was heard before the Court of Appeal who actually reversed the Technology and Construction Court's judgment decision. And the Court of Appeal said, yes, you can have double obligations in a contract, i.e. a requirement that you provide both a design life and a service life of 20 years, but you have to make that very, very clear. The drafting has to be very clear. And they felt that the drafting in the Robin Rigg contract wasn't sufficiently clear and that the, that the contract was riddled with internal inconsistencies. And the Court of Appeal said that complex documents like these sorts of contracts, which comprise thousands of pages in many instances and have obviously these very lengthy and detailed technical requirements as well as the conditions of contract, they said it's inevitable that they'll contain ambiguities and inconsistencies, but the court should not be led astray by these. They said in this case that the provisions specifying a service life were limited in number and only featured in the technical requirements and that all of the references to a design life and designing to J101, which are merely probabilistic, meant that overwhelmingly what MTH had agreed was the design life rather than a service life. And they said that an obligation to provide a service life of 20 years to guarantee that is such an onerous and serious obligation that you would expect to see it front and centre of the conditions of contract rather than tucked away in the technical requirements. So their finding was that the whole scheme of both the technical requirements, J101A1, and the conditions of contract 
pointed to MTH only ever ag- agreeing to a design life. Um, and I think the Court of Appeals reasoning appears to have been heavily influenced by the fact that it was commercially unusual to guarantee a lifespan of 20 years for an offshore wind farm and that if the parties had really intended that, then they needed to be very clear about it. Mm. And they and their words were, and this is sort of the, the catchphrase of the Court of Appeals decision, that actually that one paragraph in the technical requirements was too slender a thread upon which to hang a finding that the contractor gave a warranty of 20 years life for the foundations. Yeah. So that was a Court of Court of Appeals decision. Um, that wasn't the end of the story, though, because E.ON appealed to the Supreme Court, and this is unprecedented in my experience, but the Supreme Court initially refused leave to E.ON to appeal the Court of Appeals decision, and then two weeks later changed its mind and permitted E.ON leave to appeal. And this was obviously after a time... Uh, a two-week period in which MTH had actually announced to the market that, um, you know, we yeah, basically the won final and, word. On, and that it um, exactly. was out of the woods on this yeah. case. Exactly. Only to two weeks later for the Supreme Court, without explanation, uh, reversing its earlier decision and granting leave to appeal. So... Bearing in mind that this all sort of started to manifest in 2009, the Supreme Court decision was was heard on the 20th of June this year. So it really has been quite a long, drawn-out, protracted saga. And the Supreme Court actually reversed the court of unanimously reversed the Court of Appeals decision and found in favour of Eon. Um, and their reasoning is slightly different, but essentially they said if one looks at the natural meaning of the words used and the fact that the technical requirements were clearly meant to be incorporated into the contract, then um, MTH had actually agreed to warranting a service life of 20 years. And they said that courts should be very, very slow to, to come to a conclusion in contracts that have been negotiated by commercial parties, which is contrary to what the natural and ordinary meaning of the words used indicates. So I, I think it might be helpful, unless you disagree, but just to, to look at the two arguments that MTH ran and what the Supreme Court had to say about that. Yeah, I'd love to hear um, your, your take on that. Okay, so the first is obviously MTH had argued and argued consistently that the obligation to comply with J101 and to warrant uh, a 20-year lifetime was inconsistent. The court of the Supreme Court wasn't particularly attractive to that argument because they made reference to the fact, and indeed the contract did say, that compliance with J101 was a minimum requirement only. And I think for me, this is the most harsh aspect of this judgment. They said that the contract specified compliance with J101 to be a minimum requirement. But as well as that, what MTH had done is it 
it was it had agreed that it was its responsibility, therefore, to identify any areas where the works needed to be designed to more rigorous parameters. Um, I want to discuss that in a little bit more detail when we talk about the implications of this decision. But for me, that that's highly impractical and a particularly harsh implication of this decision. And then the next argument they looked at, which MTH deployed, was that the single paragraph in the technical requirements was too slender a thread on which to hang such an important and potentially onerous obligation. Here, the Supreme Court said that the technical requirements were clearly intended to be a contractual effect, and poor drafting is not a reason to depart from the rule that the intention of the parties must be ascertained from the language used. In terms of the distinction and the incompatibility between design life and service life, the Supreme Court wasn't troubled by that and resolved that issue by simply saying, whichever way one looks at it, MTH had failed to meet either obligation because the design, due to no fault of their own, would never result in a design. It, it wasn't providing for a design life of 20 years. And as a matter of fact, um, the foundations had not met the 20-year lifetime guarantee either because they started to fail shortly after installation. So in conclusion, and irrespective of the fact that MTH complied with the agreed design standards, um, the contract had expressed that only to be a minimum requirement and MTH, because they took on the risk of the design, bore the responsibility for the fact that the design itself was defective, i.e. the DND, the standard, the DND, the Sorry, standard was defective and incapable of producing a service life of 20 years. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a pretty harsh decision, I think, for for suppliers. Um, and what's interesting about it, I mean, it's it's unsurprising in the UK, and I don't know how the courts are looking at contract interpretation in the states, but certainly in the UK, uh, courts. The Supreme Court has indicated that courts should not be too interested in sort of trying to depart too markedly from the natural and ordinary meaning of the words used. And even if sometimes the bargain struck appears appears uncommercial, nevertheless, it's a bargain that's been struck between two commercial parties who are negotiating and they'll be held to the words that they've used and that's consistent with the way they've um, they've been deciding things and and they say that that the court should identify what the parties agreed by reference to the language used and not what the court thinks they should have agreed having regard to arguments about what's commercial what's industry practice or you know what would be um, business efficacy. Right. In that so they're they're basically case. saying that there were lawyers that put these contracts together and they together and they used specific words for specific reasons and they should be taken at what they wrote. Yeah, often that that is the thinking, but even if there are not lawyers involved, that the parties will be held to the language okay. they've used. So so that so I mean I think actually and this is um 
it's going to sound like a plug for lawyers, but given that, you know, you have to be absolutely clear about the bargain that that you've struck and what what you're agreeing to exactly mm-hmm. to make sure that your drafting is as clear as possible and that it reflects what you intend to agree. Um, the other thing I think that's interesting is actually this issue in relation to what happens when there's a defect in the design um, that a party is required to comply with and a fitness for purpose type warranty. There actually hadn't been any recent decisions in the UK in relation to this. And the court of actually each of the three courts went back to early English cases from the mid 19th and early 20th centuries. And they also had made reference to a Canadian case, which is a 1966 case. But I think what this decision does demonstrate is that I think the legal position is now settled on that point, and that is that, you know, if you've signed up to, if you've warranted a particular or a specific end result, um, even if the design which you're obliged to follow means that you can't actually achieve that result, you're nevertheless going to be held liable. When one looks at the allocation of risk, if you're taking on the design risk, you're taking it on lock, stock and barrel. So that means um, errors in, in the specification that, in fact, the employer might have might have stipulated or a standard such as the DNV standard, then, yeah, Okay. You, and so that's an implication not. that not only affects wind, but other uh, potential construction projects and, Absolutely. and contracts. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's particularly relevant to the sort of projects that we advise on regularly because, you know, a lot of what we do is um, energy. We deal with EPC contracts engineering procurement and construction contracts and by their very nature I mean they're huge documents they've, they're multi-authored as I said before you've got the, your conditions of contract which are frequently just dealt with by a legal or commercial team and then the technical specification and all the detailed technical requirements are often dealt with by way, by a technical team or engineers and unfortunately there's not a lot of coordination sometimes between the two. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's the case of never the twain shall meet. And I think this case emphasizes the importance of close coordination between the two teams so that you can be very clear about what you've actually signed up to. And in this case, you have things in the technical requirements which the engineers no doubt poured over and, and they understand those terms to mean something, um, but those were referred to in the conditions and therefore incorporated into the contract and, and found to be absolutely binding. So it, I think it does place quite a burden on contracting parties at the outset, you know, to To really to make understand sure the contract and what they're signing yeah. up for when they get into a, a deal. So Watson, Farley, and Williams, um, I assume you have 
people that are working in both of these areas where you've got technical folks evaluating the technical aspects and, and others evaluating the contract language and, and kind of determining whether or not it's beneficial to your clients? Is that something that you're working on? Yeah, I mean, that that's the ideal. The one thing I would say is that often we, we find, and I find because I'm on the dispute side, that clients will often think, and it's understandable that at the beginning of a project, everything's quite rosy, that contract signing, everyone's friends, and um, and there is a, I think there's a reluctance, there isn't much appetite to, to spend sometimes the money on drafting contracts as carefully as they could be. People will rely on standard forms that they've messed around with over time. Sometimes, you know, commercial and legal teams will be discouraged from going through the technical specs or the employer's requirements because obviously it's a laborious task. They're very lengthy and there's an unwillingness to to want to incur those sort of upfront costs. But I think one thing that this case does demonstrate is that that can be a false economy because actually the costs of spending um, a bit more time in, in getting it right at the outset and ensuring that there aren't these sort of ambiguities and inconsistencies, those costs are actually, you know, they're dwarfed in the event that something goes wrong and it's a very expensive mistake. Right. Um, you know, and, and I was going to ask as well team. about the MTH. I assume this was a, a huge hit to their finances and has it affected the company negatively in that aspect? Yeah, and I think that is that is um, public knowledge because this was not – they had a number of wind farms where this issue cropped up So because they'd all been designed in accordance with um, – DNV J101. And I should also add, and I perhaps should have emphasized this, that MTH was held liable notwithstanding that, you know, they were found not to have been negligent in their design and not to be in breach of good industry practice. Because good industry practice and what the industry was doing at the time was um, implementing and complying with DNV J101, because it, it was the standard of choice. Right. It was so, the go-to standard. So they didn't do the anything industry. specifically wrong in, industri- in the industry eyes. That's what everybody was doing at the time. But exactly. they were still held responsible for these failures. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the moral to the story is, um, obviously, it, to push back. And, and the first thing would be, um, you know, very, very wary about signing up to absolute warranties and fitness for purpose obligations. Yeah. Or if you are going to, to make sure actually you, you know what those are. You know, is it a service life? Is it a design life? Is there perhaps ambiguity as to what it is? And make sure you iron that out at the outset. And I think also wariness to, to sign up to something um, to the effect that actually compliance with a standard which is meant to be comprehensive and, and the go-to for the industry is only a minimum requirement because, and this is something I touched on earlier in our discussion, but the fact that the Supreme Court said that it was only a minimum requirement, and that's certainly what the contract did say, and that they should have identified this error or 
made the design, you know, designed more rigorously to overcome this error. And I mean, in practical terms, that that is a huge burden on suppliers um, or parties that are taking on the design risk, and that's most frequently contractors. I mean, what are they supposed to do in that particular instance uh, to identify this error, which nobody else in the industry had identified until wind farms actually started physically failing, is they would have effectively had to have had a testing house and built, you know, a monopile and transition piece with a grouted connection to scale and, and, you know, sort of tested it out to see what happens. And I think that's unrealistic in an industry like the offshore wind industry in particular, which is still in its infancy and the technology is still very pioneering. So you have advances in technology all the time, which the standards don't necessarily keep pace with. That's one issue. But also, they just you don't have the depth of industry experience and knowledge just because the industry is still at quite a fledgling state stage as compared to say oil and gas mm-hmm. um, where you know there's there's a lot of empirical evidence out there in terms of what works in engineering terms and what doesn't so, um, so they're, they're making yeah. advancements all the time and every time something changes and you get bigger bigger wind turbines the foundations probably have to exactly. be modified and and so the standards have to adapt and evolve with the times so yeah, and I think it's, you know, it, there are always going to be teething problems until the industry matures. That That's inevitable. And, you know, oil and gas you, it's, and telecoms, for example, have been around for a lot longer. And, you know, the standards um, are more mature and based on empirical experience, unlike offshore wind. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly um, an interesting case and one that the industry here has been watching out for. But as you say, it does have wider implications. It doesn't just concern offshore wind. I think it is a salutary lesson for for anyone who is um, contracting on the basis of these very lengthy and complex contracts. Sure. And, And so I guess the other aspect I would ask is, is this going to just affect wind farms and, and projects in the UK or Europe or worldwide? Uh, how do you see it affecting other areas? Um, well, I mean, I think it, these sort of decisions are, are always, of, they can always be argued to be persuasive or of, of guidance, certainly if... Um, I'm Australian, by the way, but I've lived here for 16 years. Mm-hmm. But if if a similar issue arose, for example, in Australia or any of the common law countries, then certainly they would draw upon this Supreme Court decision mm-hmm. um, as being persuasive or offering guidance, just as indeed the courts here looked at the Canadian decision mm-hmm. when there was a dearth of authority. Um, and I think it's interesting because obviously in the United States, you're now moving in to offshore wind. So no doubt um, just from the technical features of the case alone, there are lessons to be learned, I think, that players in, in the U.S. 
market should really heed. Yeah, and that's, that's um, a great I point. Know that you, I know the wind industry here is um, really in a good position to learn from all of the lessons that have been um, learned in Europe and in a lot of the uh, UK and other farms there. Yeah, exactly. You can sort of reap the benefit of, of the industry maturing and the technology maturing and some of these very expensive lessons having been learned. But, you know, for example, in the UK, wind farms are getting bigger. They're going out further to sea. Um, so you can sit back and reap the benefits of that um, research and development, hopefully. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Is there anything else uh, that you'd like to bring up or mention about the case or any other cases? Um, no, I think I think that's, that's it. Um, it's been really good to talk. Yeah, no, I, I and, really um, appreciate it. I love uh, the the background and the the uh, the way you explained the case. It was really interesting and and I think very helpful. I think for listeners. I think it's um it really is an interesting case and that's a difficult conundrum I think for a court to decide because whichever way you decide it, it's gonna it's gonna be a harsh result. I mean, on the one hand, it seems unfair for the contractor to take the rap for a, an error in a standard for which they're not responsible. But equally, if you're the developer, the owner of the wind farm, um, and you've paid significant sums to have something constructed, you know, it's equally unfair to bear the rap for it. So yeah, it's, it's a kind a of a no-win situation there. Somebody is going to be disappointed for sure. So. Exactly. So I'll be watching. Um, I'll be watching what happens in the states with interest because I know you've got offshore wind farms in Massachusetts and yeah, various and one in uh, one in Rhode Island that just came on as our first uh, offshore wind farm. So. That's the Block Island project. Actually, I do have a have a question. What's um, what's the mood in the states in in relation to offshore wind and renewables generally? Um, certainly, here there's sort of a mixture of feelings about uh, offshore wind farms and and their aesthetics. I, for one, actually I quite like I like them. I think they're really quite beautiful and sculptural. But I was just wondering, is there opposition to them in the States or, you know, is there increasingly a tendency for people to be quite positive and want to embrace renewables? I think renewables are very widely embraced uh, in the public and, and in governmental organizations. They're promoting wind and solar constantly. And I think offshore wind has, uh, it's kind of surprising to me that it hasn't taken off more but I think a lot of that was uh, due to technical reasons, and, and I think a lot of the the problems are being solved and are probably going to see this move forward quite rapidly from here. So I think uh, I think offshore wind is going to make a, a big uh, uh, jump forward, and we'll see a lot more farms coming online soon. Well, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm hoping that Australia will go the same way, and they haven't because they're still very dependent on coal, and I think... If we're honest, the coal lobby is still very powerful. But, I mean, in in the UK, I think 51% of um, energy came from renewable sources last last year, which is staggering, really. 
Um, because I remember when people first started talking about renewables, it was sort of seen as, you know, a little bit crank. Um, but well, now it's definitely um, come around. That's for sure. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, maybe if another case comes up, we can get back together and, and talk about the uh, implications in a future podcast. So thanks for your time. Okay. Thank you very much, Aaron. All right. And with that, the inaugural Power Podcast has come to an end. I want to again thank Rebecca Williams, partner with the law firm Watson, Farley, and Williams, for joining me on the show. I hope listeners found our discussion about the Robin Rigg case interesting and instructive. I've got a couple of more interviews already scheduled, so if you enjoyed this program, watch for future episodes in coming weeks. I'm Aaron Larson, executive editor of Power Magazine. Thanks for listening.